can dismiss our younger children to children's church at this time. The rest of you want to get out your message uh, sermon outlines says crying out for Christ on it. We were away last week and uh, went to church uh, Sunday morning. Uh, and being good Presbyterians, we sat in the back. Um, and I kept saying, this feels so weird. Um, I just, I wasn't comfortable at all. And I, about 10 minutes in, I finally figured out what the problem was. I was looking at the backs of everybody's head. And I was like, I don't normally do that. I see faces, and it's so much better. And so I'm glad to be again on the right side of uh, the people. It was just, for me, very disconcerting for some of you. That may be what you always see, and you're used to it. But I wasn't, and it just sort of freaked me out a little bit. I was kind of like, you know, I wanted to sort of walk down the aisle and look at people. And, you know, are you into this? Are you worshiping? Are you paying attention? Who's asleep? And you know, because obviously I keep notes on all that stuff. Um, anyways, it's good to be back, and it's good to be seeing faces uh, again. And uh, I was just surprised at how much that bothered me, not being able to see everybody's faces. And So, anyways, glad to be here. Glad that you are here this morning and uh, that you are still awake so far. Um, we'll work on that. We are in the Gospel of John, and we're in John chapter 1. And uh, we've been here, this is the fifth sermon in John 1. There's, I think, three more to go. Um, so we're taking our time. But we're in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. And you want to turn with that in your Bibles, you can read along in uh, the outline that you have. I encourage you to bring your Bible so you can uh, make a notation or underline something that uh, strikes you. But listen carefully to John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to these passages that just mark an historical event and we read it and say that's interesting and move on. And Lord, we're reminded as we were in our Sunday school class this morning that all scripture is inspired by God, that you've put it here for a reason, that it is to teach us, to train us, to discipline us, to instruct and educate us, that it has value for us. So Lord, I pray this morning you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds, our ears, that we might hear and know what you would have for us this morning. Help us to focus on your word at this time. ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I'm sure many of you were this week, I was struck by the tragic accident in New York City where a small plane flew into the 30th floor of a 42-story luxury apartment building on the Upper East Side. And it came out a little while later that the plane was owned by Corey Lytle, a pitcher for the New York Yankees. And he, along with his co-pilot, perished in the crash. And so it was a sad day for baseball, a sad day for the Yankees, and a mind-numbing tragedy for the families involved. And that afternoon, I was in my office, and I was listening to ESPN Radio XM 140, and the Dan Patrick Show was on. I know a lot of you don't listen to sports talk radio, but I do. And I was struck by something Dan Patrick said on his radio show. And I'm not sure I got all the facts exactly right, but the comment that stopped me cold went something like this. The plane crash occurred Wednesday afternoon at approximately 2.30 p.m. Corey Lytle's name was released to the media as being one of the people killed in the crash at approximately 3.45 p.m., a little more than an hour later. If you went on eBay at 2 o'clock Wednesday afternoon, you could find a Corey Lytle autographed baseball for $15. At 4 o'clock Wednesday afternoon, approximately 15 minutes after his name was released to the media, a Corey Lytle autographed baseball was selling on eBay for $318. Now, part of me was immediately annoyed that there were some people out there who were trying to make money off of this tragedy. There was another part of me that just wrote it off to the laws of supply and demand. And the cold hard facts are the supply just stopped and the demand went up. But it struck me. I have a little bug here. uh, It struck me that Corey Lytle collectibles and memorabilia became dramatically more valuable after he died. And he certainly got a lot more attention and a lot more positive press after he died. And it seemed that his value as a person seemed to increase after he died. And I felt terrible for his family 
who knew him not as a Yankees pitcher, but as a husband and a father. And I'm sure that his wife and his six-year-old son knew his real value before Wednesday. Because to them, he just wasn't uh, merely a sports commodity. He was someone whom they deeply loved. And many people out there in the world beyond the Lytle family didn't recognize Corey Lytle's value until it was too late. And then I sat down Wednesday afternoon to write this sermon on John the Baptist. And like Corey Lytle, there were many people out there in the world beyond the circle of John the Baptist's family and friends and followers who didn't recognize John the Baptist's value until it was too late. And again, like Corey Lytle, his value as a person seemed to increase after he died. Corey Lytle died on Wednesday afternoon, and he got all the press on Thursday. The media didn't move quite as quickly in the first century. John the Baptist was killed sometime around 30 AD. We don't know exactly. And now some 60 years later, The Apostle John is telling us to take a look at him because he was a person of great value. And John the Apostle is letting us know just what it was many years later that made John the Baptist such a valuable person. So let's see where that takes us. Let's start by looking a little closer at the background of this remarkable man, John the Baptist. We know from the other Gospels, most of the information we have about John the Baptist actually comes from the other Gospels. And we know he had remarkable parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, both of the tribe of Levi. They were elderly and childless. And one day Zechariah was in Jerusalem because it was his turn to perform his priestly duties including the service of offering incense, considered the most sacred of all priestly duties. And they were so careful about who got to do it that they actually kept track of it because normally you only got to one time in your life unless you were the chief high priest. You only got to do this once and it was Zachariah's turn and he's already an old man. And on this faith-filled day, Zechariah had come to the temple and he was ministering in the holy place where the table of incense stood. And as he, I imagine, reverently performed his duties according to the instruction that Yahweh had given to Moses, moving about the softly lit room, joy filled his heart. It was a great day. For Zechariah. Of course, things could happen in the holy place when you go in there. So normally, who was ever turned that was, they actually tied a rope to his ankle. So if he did something wrong and God struck him dead, they could pull him out. But in the midst of Zechariah's quiet worship in the holy place, 
as he's performing his duty, something remarkable happens. The angel Gabriel suddenly appeared in the sacred place and spoke to the old priest. Now, it's amazing he didn't just have a heart attack and they'd have to pull him out. I think that's the remarkable thing. I don't know how I would have reacted if I was you know, doing my duties and all of a sudden the archangel Gabriel showed up. I think that would get my attention. I'm not sure my heart's that strong. And, and I'm sure that Zachariah was so stunned that it was hard to comprehend what happened. But later, as he thought about these things, he would recall that it had been 400 years since the last angelic appearance. But now the angel Gabriel, one of the archangels, reveals himself to this humble priest. And that would have been enough in itself, but then Gabriel spoke to him. And it, his words were remarkable. We find them in the middle, uh, the, near the beginning of Luke chapter 1, verses 13. It says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And the records reveal that Zechariah at first didn't believe Gabriel's words. And so he was struck speechless. His tongue was bound. He couldn't talk. And he left the temple a stunned man. And of course all the other priests and Levites, they knew something had happened because he could talk when he went in but he couldn't talk when he came out. And he couldn't tell him what happened. But that's not the end of the story. Because we read later of a wonderful meeting between Zachariah's wife Elizabeth and her cousin Mary, the mother of Jesus. A meeting that overflows in spontaneous joy. Elizabeth was in the fifth month of her pregnancy when Gabriel revealed himself to Mary and told her, again, Luke 1, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So when these two women meet, Luke says that Elizabeth, again in Luke 1, exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Of course, still the story doesn't end there because John the Baptist is born and on the day he was being circumcised, the day they traditionally name um, the baby, Zachariah wrote that his name was to be John. And at that moment, the old man's tongue was freed and he sang the Benedictus, great blessing from the end of Luke chapter one that includes the words, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, 
to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sin because of the tender mercy of our God. And there was never had been anyone quite like John the Baptist. As he grew and matured, he began to take on the appearance of a prophet wearing a camel hair coat and feeding on the wild honey and locusts of the land and spending much time with God. And finally, he burst on the scene as the supreme witness of all history, for he knew who the Messiah was. And the world in John the Baptist's day was in uh, tremendous confusion. By the time we meet him in John 1, John the Baptist has been preaching for over a year. His ministry had thrown the Palestinian world into convulsions. According to the Gospels, large multitudes had come to hear him and be baptized. Matthew says that even Herod sought him out and almost believed. And just six weeks earlier, John had been visited by Jesus. And the prophet at first refused to baptize him, but then he had deferred to Jesus' request. And as he baptized Jesus, he saw the Holy Spirit come upon uh, our Lord, and he heard God's words, Matthew 3, 17, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So John's world is really whirling around at this point. And it only taken 40 days to get the whirlpool going. Remember, after Jesus' baptism, he went to the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. And now he's come back. And John has been ministering that time. And so the religious leaders in Jerusalem send a delegation, sort of like a fact-finding committee with both religious and political motivations. They want to know who John was and just what's going on. And so we start by seeing in verse 19 that John is questioned. John is questioned. That should be the first blank there in your outline. Verse 19 is also the first major division in the Gospel of John. Up to now, through verse 18, we've had the prologue, the introduction uh, of the book. And now with verse 19, the reader is launched into the events of the momentous first week of Jesus' ministry. Seven days are involved in all, beginning with the day that John meets the delegation that had come from Jerusalem And it ends with the day that Jesus attends a wedding in Cana of Galilee. The first day we'll deal with today, verses 19 through 28, John the Baptist confesses that he's not the Messiah. He denies he possesses any independent importance of his own. The second day we'll look at next week, verses 29 to 34, John identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God for whom he had come to prepare the way. The third day, Verses 35 to 39, John's testimony causes two of his own disciples to leave him and follow Jesus. The fourth day, one of those disciples, Andrew, finds his own brother, Peter, and brings him to Jesus. The fifth day, Jesus calls Philip, and Philip calls Nathaniel. They journey to Galilee on the sixth day, and the seventh day, the beginning of John 2, centers around Jesus, his mother, and his disciples, at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. In no other gospel are the marks of the passing of time so clearly noted as they are in John. 
And what's even more significant, in no other gospel are the opening events of the narrative filled with such lasting significance. And our passage this morning begins with a delegation being sent from Jerusalem to question John the Baptist. Verse 19, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? It's an interesting group, the priests and Levites for Jerusalem, because John the Baptist himself was a Levite, and he was the son of a priest, so he could have been a priest. The group that was set are people that John can identify with. You could say they represented his past, his family, his history. They were his own. But they come with questions. They want to find out who John was or who John thought he was. After all, John's fairly unique. He has a remarkable lifestyle. He wore odd-looking clothes and he ate strange food. And he preached an unusual message while wandering around the barren, rocky wilderness of Judea. He was different. He didn't conform to what people's expectations were. He was a puzzle. He's this wild-looking man who had no power, no position in the religious system, and yet he spoke with irresistible authority. And he challenged people with the truth. And he made this delegation of priests and Levites nervous. They wanted to know more about this man. See, they're sent by the official religious leaders in Jerusalem who consider John the Baptist to be a dangerous person. We know from the other Gospels that John claimed to speak in the name of God. And they were offended. The religious leaders were offended. They're the religious experts. If anyone's going to speak in the name of God, it's them. And I'm sure they felt that John shouldn't have been speaking at all. Just wouldn't do to have people listening to this upstart young preacher in the barren Judean wilderness. They were opposed to what John was doing. It's just a shadow of things to come. For later, it would be the same religious leaders who would oppose Jesus. And so the official delegation from Jerusalem Ask John a series of questions, trying to pin him down, but they run into a problem. John didn't come to talk about John. That wasn't what John was about. Instead, John points to Christ. Verse 20, John points to Christ. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Now, in our response this morning, it seems that Jesus says it's a lot like Elijah. It seems to say he's a prophet. In Luke chapter 1, it says he's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. So what's going on? John knew what they wanted to know. Others had already been conjecturing about whether or not he was the Christ. In fact, there were people who followed John the Baptist for the next 200 years, long after he was killed. They, there were people who thought he was the Christ. But John himself, he answers them formally and carefully. Notice it says he confessed twice in verse 20. I am not 
the Christ. Now, the delegation could only think of three things that John could claim to be. First one's obviously the Messiah. Is he the Messiah, the Christ? You got to remember, as we're reading these words, the Jews are people living under the dominion of Rome. And they were looking for a gr with great expectation for a deliverer, as any captive people do. And if John had said he was the Christ, then thousands would have unfurled the banners of the Maccabeans, the whole world would have been tossed into war. But he readily admitted that he was not the Christ. So they ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? And that's a fair question. After all, he looked like Elijah. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. The Jews expected Elijah to come again. In fact, the very final words of the Old Testament. If you turn to the very end of Malachi, the last thing it says is, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. But again, John answers, I am not. He certainly, even though others applied that title to him, and it was prophesied by Gabriel, by Elizabeth, and Jesus himself applies that title to John. He doesn't take that title for himself. So they question him again. Are you the prophet? And they're thinking about a sp specific prophecy that Moses gave in the book of Deuteronomy. There he said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. But again, John said no. And he's very explicit in his denial. And John refuses to let himself get sidetracked by this delegation from Jerusalem or get caught up by the questions or get involved in a lengthy discussion about himself. Part of his witness to Christ consisted of refusing to take any position or any title for himself. The delegation wanted to talk about John, but John wanted to talk about Jesus. John wanted to put a quick end to the idle speculation about himself and get people headed in the right direction. So he deflects attention away from himself and points people to Jesus. That's John's main uh, uh, intent, to point people to Christ. We have to go to the other Gospels to read about John the Baptist calling people to repentance and telling them that they need to be baptized. We go to the other Gospels to read about John teaching people like tax collectors and soldiers in the crowds. We go to the other Gospels to read about John's deeds and his baptism and his imprisonment and his death. The writer of this Gospel, John the Apostle, is interested only in one thing about John the Baptist, his witness. And that's what John was, a witness. To testify or to be a witness is a legal term. It essentially means you're committing yourself to one side of the story. And John did. John was there to tell plainly and clearly what he knew. He was well aware of what was required of him to function as a witness for Christ.
But this leaves the delegation with a problem. So far, they haven't done very well. And they knew they couldn't return without some sort of answer. So they pressed John further, only to discover his true mission, that John prepares for Christ. John prepares for Christ. Verse 22. They decide to press John. In verse 22 we read, So they said to him, Well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So far, he hadn't said anything about himself. That's the problem. So John gives an answer in verse 23 that reveals what is of primary importance in the matter of being a witness for Christ. He says, I am the voice. He didn't say, I am the word. He reached back 700 years to the words prophesied in Isaiah 40. And he said, I am just a voice. He's not the substance, but the communicator. John may not have been the Messiah or the prophet, but he wasn't just another preacher. And he quotes Isaiah in verse 23. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And borrowing the imagery from that Old Testament passage, he's saying, I'm merely a workman making a road for the Messiah. In the ancient Near East, whenever a king traveled far distances, he sent out a group of royal engineers ahead of him to scout out the route, to clear away the obstacles, to make sure it was as quick and as straight and as easy as possible. And the prophet Isaiah used that imagery to call the nation of Israel to prepare for their return from exile and to renew their worship of God in Jerusalem. And so John is standing in a place of transition between two worlds, the old and the new. And John is calling Old Testament people, we really consider him to be the last Old Testament prophet, even though he's at the beginning of the New Testament. He's calling Old Testament people to prepare for New Testament reality. And he's using the same passage from Isaiah to call people to prepare for the coming of the Lord. He's telling people, stop what you're doing. Get ready for the Messiah. Prepare the way for him. Prepare your lives for him. Prepare your hearts for him. Get yourself ready. Get the obstacles cluttering up your life out of the way. The Messiah is coming. But you can't see a voice. You can only hear it. And no one looks much at the workman who's preparing the road for the coming of the king. They're looking for the king. And yet this is what John the Baptist declares himself to be, a voice and a workman. The last thing in the world that he wanted was for men to look at him. And John emphasized why he had come, to prepare the way for the Messiah. And the delegation from Jerusalem missed the point. They wanted to know who John was. But John wanted them to know who Jesus was. John's only the voice, the messenger. Jesus was the word. He was the message. Things haven't changed all that much some 2,000 years later. Today, people are still asking about the preacher. They're asking about the church. They're asking about the denomination. And those are important things, but they're missing the point. 
asking about the various messengers doesn't matter if you don't get the message. And they're missing the point because they're failing to prepare their lives, to prepare their hearts for the Lord. They want to know about this practice or that doctrine, but along the way, they miss the Messiah. They miss Jesus. Don't let people sidetrack you with questions that divert your attention, but stay focused on the real issue at hand. Do they or do they not know who Jesus Christ is? And if they don't, tell them. And if they do, ask them if they believe in him. That's the main thrust of the Gospel of John. It ought to be the main thrust of our message. The theme verse of this book, John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is preparing people so that they may believe that Jesus is the Christ. But as part of that preparation, it's important to note that John passes by himself. Verse 24 to the end of the passage, John passes by himself. Having missed the point of his last statement entirely, the delegation changes direction and changes the questions they have for John. Verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? So they've changed the subject. They're no longer asking him who you are. They're asking him, why are you doing this? If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, and John answered them, I baptized with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. See, they didn't really come to hear John's answers. They came to get the answers they wanted to make specific points with John in areas where they thought he was wrong. And in general, they had no problem with uh, baptism. They allowed Gentile converts to baptize themselves all the time. According to Jewish tradition, you baptized yourself. But here John was doing the baptizing. And not only that, he was baptizing Jews. And that made him mad. To their way of thinking, Jews didn't need to be baptized. They had already been chosen by God. So they're asking John, who gave him the right to treat God's chosen people like Gentiles? But John takes the authority question raised by the Pharisees and turns it into a means of bearing witness to the Messiah. In fact, he says, yes, I do baptize and I have authority from God to do so. Individual repentance and faith is required of all people, regardless of their religious or family background even Jews. But I'm not worthy. I'm nothing compared to the one coming after me. In fact, I'm not even uh, worthy to untie the thongs, the straps of his sandal. It's an extraordinary statement. There's an old rabbinical teaching that said a student must be willing to do everything for his rabbi that a slave would do except untie the thongs of his sandals. Because even, I imagine, a rabbi's feet got dirty and smelly, and it's just an unpleasant task, one that's too menial, too lowly for anyone other than a slave to do. So what's the equivalent task in our society? Emptying bedpans? Cleaning up 
someone's vomit, taking out foul-smelling garbage. I mean, who among us would say, we're not even worthy to do that? Most of the time, we're thinking, you know, we're far too good to do those things. Get somebody else to do it. But here, John the Baptist states with incredibility that he's not even worthy to do this task normally reserved for slaves. He's not worthy to untie the sandals of the Messiah. John the Baptist took the lowly place. He didn't care to parade his own virtues, and he drops the subject of baptism and passes by himself and went on to point out the greatness of Christ. I'm sure the followers of John the Baptist thought he was missing a great opportunity. But John's interest was in Christ and in nothing less. He came to be a witness for Christ, and he never missed an opportunity to do that. John took the low place, and he gave the place of highest honor to Jesus. It's pretty rare in our day and age. Occasionally it happens. One instance happened uh, with uh, a great conductor. His name was Arturo Toscanini. Some of you may have heard of him if you listen to classical music at all. But he was one of the great ones. And uh, one evening, he's conducting his orchestra, and he's conducting Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, considered one of the greatest symphonies ever written. And it was a brilliant performance, the end of which the audience went absolutely wild. They were clapping and whistling and stomping their feet, absolutely caught up in the greatness of the performance. And as Tuscanini stood there, as the conductor does, you know, up on the stage, right front and center, and he bowed and he bowed and he bowed, acknowledging then his orchestra behind him. And when the ovation finally began to subside, Tuscanini turned around and looked intently at all of his musicians. And he was almost out of control as he whispered, gentlemen, gentlemen, and the orchestra had to lean forward to listen. In a fiercely enunciated whisper, Tuscanini said, gentlemen, I am nothing. And that was an extraordinary admission because Tuscanini was blessed with an enormous ego. And then he added, gentlemen, you are nothing. Well, they heard that same message over and over during rehearsal. But then in a tone of adoration, he said, but Beethoven, Beethoven is everything. And I read that, and I thought, that's the attitude that we need towards ourself and towards the Lord Jesus. I am nothing, you are nothing, but he is everything. And that's John the Baptist's attitude. That's John the Apostle's attitude. That's the attitude of every messenger and every follower of Christ. And so we need to ask ourselves, is that my attitude? In my world, in my thoughts, in my life, is Jesus everything? Perhaps we should pray.